you have your Bibles, we'll be in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With the wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said to him, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And a great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And that's the end of the reading. I mean, some of my favorite stories in all of the Bible are the first chapters of Acts. The mighty, like, tornado-like wind that rushes in and fills the home, not the temple, but the home of these people, and then these tongues of fire. I kind of picture what those look like and stuff, and then they speak in these unknown languages, and then they bring out this powerful healing, these supernatural words, these supernatural powers— Lame people, they walk along. These disciples walk along and they are healing people in the streets. They are speaking against the authorities of the day and and they're living these righteous, generous lives. One of my favorite verses in this part of the Bible is Acts 4.13 that says, when they, the authorities, saw the courage of Peter and John and they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It wasn't seminary or rabbinical school or power or prestige that made these men powerful. It was that they had been with Jesus. Ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Isn't that what we picture, or at least it's what I picture, the life in Christ, this spirit-filled, spirit-equipped, spirit-empowered life that we've been talking about in this series called Ghost Stories is all about? That's what happens here. And if you've read these stories before, then you've seen the excitement, you've felt the joy and the thrill of what it would be like as Jesus leaves and says, oh, it's gonna be better when I leave because I will send the Holy Ghost, the comforter, the advocate, and he will be with you always. It will be better. If I would have been the disciple at the time, I would have thought, no, 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 I really like that when you're with me, When you are here, right here, Jesus, when I can touch you and I can see you, I like that. I don't know what this will feel like. And he describes it in John. But then we see what it's like in these chapters in Acts. 
we see these unschooled people doing amazing things. That is what it's like. And then we get to this story that we just read. And it just doesn't seem to fit. I would say most people don't really know what to do with this story because it sounds too harsh. Or is that just me? See, it's not the only harsh story in the Bible. If, if you want to turn there, you can go to Leviticus. I know maybe some of you haven't spent a lot of time in Leviticus, but Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, ha <laughs> ha, Numbers. Guess I haven't spent much time there lately. No, it's just a brain thing. It's a great book. Not a lot of action, but we'll... A lot of rules. Anyway, the point of the story, before I get lost in my own head, Leviticus 10 is when two of Aaron's sons, now remember Aaron is the first high priest of God's people. Aaron is Moses' brother, and the main reason why Moses took the job, because he said, oh, I'm not an eloquent speaker. Well, what about Aaron? He can speak for you. And so Aaron and Moses have been leading God's people this whole time in the wilderness, and they're They're spending a year building the temple, getting the law. Those things are happening in Leviticus until this story comes. The temple's complete and Aaron is the high priest and these two sons are part of this priestly, they have these priestly duties. They go into the temple and in Leviticus 10, two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, it says they disregarded God's sanctuary. They went in and took fire and they offered incense in a way that was contrary to God's command and a fire from the presence of the Lord in this temple that was portable called the tabernacle consumed them. They were fried. I think that's harsh. And it it says later that Aaron was just silent. Like people were stunned. Again, it's not the only harsh thing in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David, the greatest king of Israel, finally becomes king, he gets 30,000 of the best soldiers and brings them to go get the Ark of God. This was the the box that housed the Ten Commandments, uh, a jar of the manna and the staff of Moses, and the arch enemies of God's people had taken it and stolen it, and so finally it was back in the region but not in the capital city of Jerusalem, and so David goes to the house of Abinadab. If you are not a parent yet, or you're thinking of having more children, just take some notes. These are some great names. So Abinadab has the ark in his house, or in his possession, and he's got two sons that are going to go with the ark, Ahihu, Ahihu, and Uzzah. And so they build a new cart for the ark of God. Now what's interesting is it's not just an ark, like the ark of God or the holy ark of the covenant of God. You know, I would probably shorten that to just the ark. Listen how the writer describes it. To bring up the ark of God, which is, oh, one back, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. That's a lengthy title. And they put it on a new cart, not a cart that's been used before. Ahio is going in front of the ark. Uzzah is standing beside the ark. And then it says that David and his 30,000 of the best soldiers, they're not protecting the ark. They are praising God with all of their might and using all kinds of musical instruments to do so to bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. And then by... um, 
by Nacon's house. Nacon's house has a threshing floor, but in his area, Uzzah puts his hand on the ark because the ox slip and the ark starts to slide. And so he puts his hand there to steady the ark, which I think is a noble act, but God doesn't. God calls it an irreverent act and Uzzah is killed right there. And, and David is ticked. In fact, he changes the name of this region to Perez Uzzah, like the Lord's wrath came out against Uzzah. But God can choose to do what God can choose to do. But if you're looking for stories to build a case that says God is cruel, you might include these stories. However, I would submit to you today that these stories are not to show that God is cruel, but to show God is holy. And I will, I will say every day of my life that God is love. He absolutely loves but his love is so pure and so good that it can only be described as holy. And these stories are here to show us that God is holy. However, I found a phenomenal short video that explains God's holiness. So would you take a look at it? I think it'll do even a better job than I at why God includes this. You've probably heard the word holy before, or at least sang it in a church song once or twice. And for most people, this idea is really just connected to being a morally good person. So God is holy because he's morally perfect. Yeah, that is part of it. But in the Bible, the idea of holiness is even bigger and more rich. What it's really describing is how God is the creative force behind the whole universe. He's the one and only being with the power to make a world full of such beauty and life. And so all these abilities, they make God utterly unique, which is the meaning of the word holy. So a helpful way to think about God's holiness is by using the sun as a metaphor. The sun is unique, at least within our solar system, and it's really powerful. It's the source of all this beautiful life on our planet. And so you could say that the sun is holy. And you can actually take this metaphor even further in that the whole area around the sun is also holy. Yeah, because the closer you get to the sun, the more intense it gets. Yeah, exactly. So that very power and goodness that generates all this life is also dangerous. I mean, the sun, if you get too close, will annihilate you. And in the same way, there's this paradox at the heart of God's own holiness, because if you're impure, his presence is dangerous to you. And not because it's bad, but because it's so good. And so the first time we see this paradox of God's holiness, it's in the story of Moses and the burning bush. So God tells Moses to take off his sandals because he's standing on holy ground. And Moses covers his face in fear, and God says, hey, don't come any closer. It's intense. It's actually that intensity of God's holiness that's explored even more in the stories about Israel's temple, which was the main place where God's holy presence was located. And at the center of the temple was this room called the most holy place, the hot spot of God's presence. And whether you're an Israelite living in the land around the temple or a priest working right in the temple, you're in proximity to God's holy presence, which is dangerous. Yeah, this is a problem. So how's it supposed to work? Well, in the Bible, the solution is that you need to become pure. So like being morally pure. Yeah, and that's easy enough to understand. But the Bible spends a lot of time talking about another kind of purity, being ritually pure, which is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death, 
like touching things like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. All these make you impure. And becoming ritually impure isn't necessarily sinful. What's wrong is waltzing into God's presence when you're in an impure state. And so that's why God gave the Israelites very clear instructions for knowing when they were impure, steps to become pure, so that they could go into the temple again. So that's what the book of Leviticus is about. Right. But it doesn't stop there. This idea keeps developing. So later in the scriptures, we find this really interesting story by a prophet named Isaiah. And he has this crazy vision where he's in the temple and he's right in God's presence. He's totally terrified. Yeah, he knows the rules. He shouldn't even be in there. And he's worried about being destroyed. And then this crazy creature called a seraphim. Yeah, that is a crazy creature. (laughs) Totally. So it flies over with a hot coal, and then it sears Isaiah's lips with the coal and says something really weird. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So this burning coal somehow makes Isaiah pure. Yeah, it's remarkable because normally if you touch something impure, it transfers its impurity to you. But now here's this new idea where you have this coal, this very holy and pure object, and it touches Isaiah and it transfers its purity to him. Isaiah is not destroyed by God's holiness. He's transformed by it. I mean, the implications of this are just huge. Instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, here God's holiness comes out from the temple, making things pure and bringing them to life. What does it all mean? We don't know until we meet this man, Jesus. And he claims that he's fulfilling all of these ancient visions, but in surprising new ways. So Jesus, he went around touching people who are impure, people with skin diseases, a a woman with chronic bleeding or dead people. And when he touches them, their impurity should transfer over to Jesus. But instead, Jesus' purity transfers to them and actually heals their bodies. Jesus is like that holy coal in Isaiah's vision. Right. And Jesus claimed that he was the human embodiment of God's own holiness and that he and his followers were now God's temple so that through them, God's holy presence would go out into the world and bring life and healing and hope. So that's what Jesus did when he came on the scene is he said that I am the new temple of God and he healed people not in the temple where they had traditionally gone to receive forgiveness of sin. He healed people out in the countryside. He healed people in the courts. He healed people in places that they wouldn't normally expect to be healed. Not only did he do that, he touched people that should have like the video said, transferred that impurity to him and instead they became pure. This is radical and revolutionary, even if it doesn't quite make sense because we don't spend a lot of time talking about being ritually pure. But not only does Jesus do that, when he sends the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter two, then the Holy Spirit sounds a whole lot like in Acts chapter two with the mighty rushing wind and the flames of fire. That sounds a whole lot like when the tabernacle was built and at the end of Exodus chapter 40, a fire comes down and a wind comes and fills the temple or the tabernacle. And then later when the temple is filled in Second Chronicles 7, the same thing happens. A mighty rush of wind and fire comes down and a glory fills the temple. And now Jesus sends this spirit that sounds a whole lot like the temple. And I'm convinced that Acts 2, 3, and 4, that the writer is trying to show us 
that the people of Jesus are the new temple of God. I mean, one of his followers even says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in your midst, dwells in your midst. The Holy Spirit is there. And Jesus' followers are living these pure, generous lives. They're healing. They are praying bold prayers. They're doing miracles. They're sharing their wealth. And it's beautiful, but it's strategic. Because this writer wants us to understand that the temple of God and Jesus and Jesus' followers all have the glorious presence of God. That is completely love, but it's complete holiness too. And these people actually believe that, that they are part of God's temple. And when God's holiness meets people, it does change them forever if they have a willing heart. If they don't, if they come in in irreverence, then things could happen. Things like Ananias and Sapphira falling over in a very similar way than Aaron's sons falling over. And at the end of Aaron's son's story, they wrap up their bodies in a sheet and carry them out and bury them. It's the same language. The writer wants us to see that these people are the new temple. Now, how does that relate to the Holy Spirit? How does that relate to ghost stories? Well, to, to tell a lie, which is what Ananias and Sapphira did, we have to believe a lie. What might have been the lie that Ananias and Sapphira were believing? I think it would have went something like this. Hey, Sapphira, did you hear about this guy, Joseph, who sold this field and, and brought all the money to the, to the apostles? There was such a celebration, they actually nicknamed him Barnabas, like, which means son of encouragement. That is pretty cool. Don't you think that's pretty cool? You know, we have that land up in the hills, you know, and, and the market's a little shaky. I think that we could actually post it for a little bit above market value. And, you know, not too many people around here know, know that, and we don't have an internet, so they're not going to see it posted online or on social media. So we could sell it for a little above market, but we could tell people we sold it for a little below market, and we could make a killing. Nobody has to know. Nobody would get hurt, Right? Besides, we might get some praise out of it. The, it's going to a good cause. You know, God gets a lot. We get a little. Everybody wins. Because whenever, that, that could have been the lie. But I would say to tell a lie, we have to first believe a lie. And so they waltz into God's presence, into the holy temple, which is a group of people that are unschooled and ordinary. And they think, oh, we can just do this. We can just kind of test the limits of God's love. Because he's totally love, right? And that's what they do. But what I think it also shows us is that God's holiness is not optional when we follow Jesus. And that's sometimes hard for me to hear. I love how Jesus is so accessible, how he hangs out with people that are sinners, but I forget this part, that when those sinners are in the presence of Jesus, they are transformed by him. And if I truly understand God's holiness, then I would be transformed 
by him. And if I'm not, if I take seriously that God's holiness is not optional, then when a group of people are living righteous, generous, and holy lives, and they are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then crazy things could happen. Severe things could happen, just like they do in this story. But as we think about what this means for us, we need to consider just this question of what Peter says to Ananias. Because remember, to, to tell a lie, we have to believe a lie. And Peter says, Ananias, how could Satan so fill your heart that you did this? What do you picture when he says that? Do you picture like some being jumping into Ananias' heart, like changing into a little vapor. Or do you picture those, what is it, Looney Tunes cartoons? They had like a good angel on one side and a bad one on the other. And I remember, um, I'm sure, pretty sure it's a Disney movie, but like a poisonous vapor coming out. When I picture this Satan-filling heart, Like it's this subtle whisper, it's very different than the mighty wind, but it's this subtle whisper that just permeates into Ananias' mind. And like the Disney movies where the person falls over dead or or goes into an eternal sleep until true love wakes its kiss, that's, I picture this hypnotism coming over. And all of a sudden Ananias believes the lie and tells the lie. And he says, you didn't lie just to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God, equating the Holy Spirit with God in case you had a doubt about that. But the issue was the lie. It was was his money. The issue was the lie. See, the problem with lying, the deep down to the core issue with lying is that, that we take the highest faculty, the highest function that human beings possess Think about this, because, you know, sure, animals are intelligent and they communicate through squawks and, and gleeps and stuff like that, but, but human beings, they can actually speak things into existence. Remember at the beginning of the scriptures that God spoke and light came out and God spoke the creation into existence? Well, you try and tell a child day after day after day that they are amazing, that they are intelligent, that they are powerful, that they can do anything that they put their mind to. And that last one, you know, maybe not. But day after day after day, you tell them that. Does that not come true? And likewise, you tell a child day after day after day, you're stupid, you can't do anything, you'll never amount to anything. Does that not also come true? This is the highest faculty that that we have that we can speak truth about who we are and what we believe and how the future will unfold. God has given that creativeness to us. And sometimes we just shred people with our words. I mean, this writer Paul even says that when we do this, when we abuse this gift of speech, we, we're, really, we're really saying we don't like the world the way it is, we don't think it should be the way it is, and we'd like to change the way it is out of our own strength. We don't trust God in that. And so the writer says in Ephesians 4, let the Spirit 
the Holy Spirit, renew our thoughts, put on a new nature created to be like God, by the way, righteous and holy. And then he says, stop telling lies. Tell your neighbors the truth because we're all part of this body. And don't bring sorrow, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by the way that you live. He's identified you with himself, guaranteeing that you will be saved on the day of redemption. You know, you can only grieve someone that you are close to. A stranger, if you do something irreverent, they don't really care. They might be irritated. You could have a coworker that you don't really like be annoyed with you, but you can't grieve someone unless you're close to them, unless they care about you and you care about them. So when was the last time you thought about grieving the Spirit? If the Holy Spirit is in you, then you can bring sorrow on the Holy Spirit. I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I say that because it's here in the scriptures. And it's so easy for us to be consumed with improving ourselves or making ourselves better or getting a life coach or a counselor talking about what happened to us and how we can be changed by it that we are so focused on ourselves that we miss that our words and our actions might actually destroy someone who is created in the image of God, loved by God, and if they are a believer of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit in them. So you and I can decide to believe truth instead of lies. We can speak things into existence. We can actually be concerned about being grieving the Holy Spirit. And when we do, we can start to do what Paul said, to watch the way we walk, to let nothing foul or dirty come out of our mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, not just what we want to say and it will actually benefit others. The writer Eugene Peterson and scholar says it like this, that we shouldn't grieve God. We shouldn't break his heart. His Holy Spirit moves and breathes within us. He's sensitive to us, and it's the most intimate part of our life, this Holy Spirit in us. So don't take such a gift for granted. Make a clean break with all the cutting and backbiting and profane talk, and be gentle with one another and sensitive forgiving one another quickly and thoroughly as in Christ God has forgiven us. See, what starts in our soul comes out of our lips. What are you believing that's a lie today? What do you need to confess that's true? What do you need to ask for forgiveness for? Because God has so quickly and 100% unconditionally forgiven each one of us and it's our opportunity to accept it. No matter what you've done, no matter who you are, God quickly and unconditionally forgives you. And if we take that in and receive his spirit, then we can give that out. And the Holy Spirit doesn't grieve. He rejoices. Would you pray with me? God, this story would be a lot easier if Ananias had just said, you know what, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? I did wrong. But that's not what it says. It's not what your spirit and your word have to offer today, God. And so I pray that as you put a spotlight on your purity and your holiness, that your power and your love and your presence, God, would come into our lives right now, that you would speak to us about the lies that we are believing 
and that we even tell. And that would not cause shame in our lives, but would cause us to, to turn from what we're doing, to run towards you, not away from you, to stop attacking other people that you love and start asking for your truth, your love, and your power, and your presence through your Holy Spirit to flow through us, to bring good and new life into existence like you called us to be and you called us to do. God, I pray that we would acknowledge and ask for your spirit. God, that we would confess when we brought sorrow on your name. And God, when we do this together as a body, when we do this daily, when we ask for that help, the world notices. You're given glory and we are transformed. And that is my prayer for us today, that we would be transformed by you. In Jesus' name, amen.